This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a bunch of great topics, a lot of really interesting uh, EVTOL stuff back in the news cycle. Uh, we're going to start off with the GE9X, uh, their record-breaking engine, talk about some of the capabilities that they've demonstrated recently at the Dubai Air Show. Uh, we'll talk about some more Boeing 787 manufacturing issues. Uh, they're having some problems with their carbon fiber composites. Uh, more reporting by Seattle Times aerospace reporter Dominic Gates. We'll talk about one of his recent articles uh, that looks like more trouble for Boeing. Uh, we'll talk about the Solera 500L, the very interesting um, sort of blimp-shaped laminar flow. Um, you know, their big thing is, let's start that one over. We'll talk about the Solera 500L, which is auto aviation's creation that really rides the coattails of laminar flow, and their goal is to really reduce uh, the cost of, of private jet travel or whether it's air taxi, whatever their application might be. But their really unique aircraft, the 500L, is back in the uh, in the news cycle today. And they've done a lot of flight testing and they're ready to release some info about that. In our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about the City Hawk, which looks a lot more, again, like one of those sort of Blade Runner style uh, air, you know, air taxis of the future. This one with all the fans sort of tucked inside, which is a good safety step, but we'll see if that prototype has any realistic uh, outlook in the future. We'll also talk about an eMagic aircraft prototype and some big news from Joby as they start really start talking about seriously the uh, FAA, FAA certification process. So, Alan, let's start off quickly, quickly with the GE9X. This is a just gigantic, impressive uh, GE turbine engine. So the Dubai Air Show, they talked about just how powerful this is, but also how robust it is, you know, in de- ingesting lots of dust uh, and sand that are, I guess, not typical of a certification effort. Is that true? Right, right. Usually don't have <laughs> dust ingestion as part of their uh, cert effort. At least, the, and the, they have a huge test facility in southern Ohio, is in Peebles, Ohio, which I've been to a couple of times uh, doing lightning tests on a variety of different uh, power plants down there but the, the you know if you're selling airplanes in the middle east one of the big issues is sand and dust just like in the military when the military aircraft were in the middle east they have big problems with sand and dust getting to the engines and starting to destroy equipment so they've gone ahead and just done some some really strenuous tests and just sucking in dust to see where it goes because you can well imagine if it gets past seals or into places where there's lubrication it just ends up grinding destroying things so it's a a really interesting tactic by ge to try to address the concerns up front because fixing an engine of that size can be really really expensive and you think that they're probably going to sell quite a number of larger transport aircraft to the middle east and uh, so they're just being proactive which is really kind of cool you don't see a lot of proactive engineering tests like that Mm mm-hmm so what, when they say dust, what do they actually mean? Because like when I think of dust, I think of you know wiping your cabinet in your house, and you're like gross. But is dust? Does that mean sand? Like what? What does it exactly mean? I feel like it's a very vague term. 
Yeah, it's going to be sand typically or finer particles uh, because the finer the particle, the more places it can get into <laughs> and cause more damage. The larger particles, we all know, are just erosive. So the the inlet blades and all the, the, the sections where sand can get into or dust can get into, they're going to check for erosion. And that's why they're, they're boroscoping, looking for that kind of damage inside the engine when they run these tests. I th the, the kicker, though, is, you know, you always have some sort of erosion because the, the blades are hitting the little particles and, and that's going to do some damage there. But you really, really, really don't want to get into to rotating pieces, the bearings and that sort of thing. Sometimes the finer the particle, the more likely it can kind of find those small crevices to call into. And that's what you're, I think, what you're really checking for because you just destroy an engine that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, so if an aircraft is just rolling down the runway, I mean, the jet engines are on. I mean, how are they not just sucking up every little piece of dust like a vacuum cleaner? as they're just doing their daily rounds. They are, I mean... But yeah, oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. But how is that not a catastrophic thing? I mean, what's the difference here? Uh, well, it's just a matter of how well the engine can handle it. If you ever watched the little cyclones that develop in front of an engine, like if it's raining outside and you're having to be sitting where the engines are and the engines spool up, you kind of see those tornado cyclone <laughs> events that happen in front of the engine. They're sucking in water, right? Not a lot of it there, but they, they can suck in debris from the runways. That's why you try to make sure that the... The areas are free of FOD, foreign object debris, right? Sand and dirt and being one of them because it can get sucked into the engine, particularly like on a 737, which engines are relatively low to the ground. With a, with a 9X, the engine is going to be a little bit farther off the ground. But the thrust, like you were saying, Dan, is so massive, it's got to suck in a lot of air also that can pull things from the ground. And if you're in the Middle East or places where it's really sandy, what's the likelihood you're going to get all the sand off a runway or a taxiway after a dust storm? I think the answer is probably close to zero. You're really going to get at all of it, and that's what can lead to premature wear and tear on an engine, and that's why they're checking it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it sounds like they're just doing their extra diligence, just trying to show that this can definitely handle pretty significant dust, even though GE engineered their own dust, which is interesting, the GE Research Center in New York, they made their own special dust for this uh, <laughs> this this test, but yeah, okay. So it sounds like you're trying to get in front of it and just show off. Hey, this is not only a record-breaking, gigantic, powerful engine, but also very robust. So makes sense. Yeah, and it, GE has a. If you've ever been to the research center, which is not very far from us here, it's probably an hour away from our facility. Uh, they have basically a building full of really smart people to do work just like this across all their divisions. And then obviously in uh, Evendale, Ohio, where the engines are manufactured, they're full of engineers. They have a lot of experience on the kind of damage that they see from the field. So they can go back and recreate it at their test facility in Peebles. That's what that's what's going on. So it's, it's really fascinating because you don't think that's going to – you don't think – Airplane companies, engine companies are doing that kind of work, but they really are because that's what separates them from everybody else. Well, speaking of uh, engines, the Boeing 787, the Dreamliner, is having more problems. And a memo, uh, a memo update from late last month, Boeing has told the FAA that they found air, uh, or carbon fiber contamination uh, that's now at other major suppliers, not only in the wings, but also in the fuselage and tail so, Alan, obviously, you know quite a lot about um, carbon fiber structures and this whole this whole process. What's going on here? What's the core of this issue now with the seven eight seven? 
Well, Mitsubishi found it, and Mitsubishi builds the wing for the 787. And as part of the construction process of making a piece of carbon fibers, you have these bags, basically vacuum bags, that apply pressure to the part. That's why you cook it out um, and the epoxy cures. And they're finding that somewhere in the process, Mitsubishi realized that like a stringer on the inside of the wing hadn't adhered to the level they thought it should, probably in some quali- quality testing that they're doing and sampling program that Mitsubishi set up. They were looking at numbers and realized they're seeing some sort of slight changes in, in the performance. And then everybody starts digging around to see what's going on, most likely, and they realize that there's some Teflon contamination. And when, once you realize you got Teflon contamination in a composite joint, you really got to be concerned because... The reason we use Teflon is that nothing sticks to it. So if you do get Teflon in between two pieces of carbon fiber you're trying to bond together, they're not going to stick as well as if they were clean. And the problem with Teflon is that once it gets on a surface, it's really, really difficult to get off a surface without basically abrading it off or really corrosively, chemically trying to remove it. So... Mitsubishi finds this problem, tells Boeing about it. Somebody at Boeing, I'm sure a lot of people at Boeing had the same red flag I had when I first read this, is, it, well, if Mitsubishi has a problem with the vacuum bag, everybody has it around the world. And we need to start looking to see how bad it is. And, of course, they start finding it in other places. So it's not just a one location, one part problem, and now it becomes kind of a global problem. Then when you have composite structures glued together, they're not going to stick as well, and they're finding that depending on where the part was built, what part of the world it is, some of those joints aren't performing to the level they should. So you can well imagine the engineers at Boeing just basically pulling their hair out and going, what is going on with this program right now why can't we get a six month or a year long run of no problems what is this uh and and dan can you imagine i basically one of the most fundamental pieces of making a piece of carbon fiber which is the vacuum bag is now contaminated and now you gotta go back and figure out what to do about it after the fact that's really hard really really hard and it sounds like the engineers have been working on testing and looking at those joints and it seems like some of the joints are are pretty strong like they're within the engineering allowables some of them aren't what do you do yeah it seems like a really awful problem really awful i mean what doesn't teflon ruin nowadays right um no teflon was the miracle cure back in the what 40s 50s something like that 60s when it was developed and Developed by accident, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And here it is, still screwing life up. The, the, miracle, the miracle to disaster curve of modern inventions, um, most specifically plastics. But Yeah, well, it's good at what it does, but that's one of the things about airplane manufacturing lines is you can't have Teflon. Like Teflon sprays for lubrication, uh, films, anything of the sort, because it, it does leave like a residue. Particularly on your fingers. I don't know why I say so much on your fingers, cause I've, but I've seen this thing happen. Someone will get some Teflon on the manufacturing line that doesn't belong there, touch the airplane, 
And then when they try to paint it, it the paint will not stick there. And there's really not much you can do to get that off. So you can really ruin an airplane paint job very quickly. And so Teflon has been essentially banned in the factory for most things. It's odd that the bags, vacuum bags, have slipped through that. And then it, did you see the second part too, Dan, which is the titanium fittings that they had a, a basically an incorrect alloy in some really major structural pieces inside the fuselage. Uh, that's not good. Is this an extension of what we discussed maybe last year that Boeing over time has outsourced more and more of their uh, fabrication to other suppliers that they used to back in the golden ages do a lot more of it in-house? Is this a, a problem of that sort or is it just inevitable the way the world is nowadays? Well, th I was trying to read between the lines in Dominic's article and it, it, the, some of the problems seem to be located at Leonardo, uh, which is a major subcontractor to Boeing on the 787. The titanium pieces were an issue. They're also having shimming issues that seem to be coming from Leonardo on composite to composite parts. They're not lining up like they should, and they're not getting shimmed properly, and they don't have a quality system over top of the manufacturing system there to, to inspect the parts, make sure they're right. So now they got titanium alloy problems and they have shimming problems from one supplier. They've got this Mitsubishi wing issue with the Teflon bags, which then I think it went everywhere. Uh, it, that was one of the big things about the 787 when they did all the design for it and outsourced pretty much all the major structures were outsourced. Uh, around the world, not just in the U.S., just all over the place, to reduce the amount of basically workers and time that Boeing would spend on the aircraft. They were going to be an assembler, not a creator sort of thing. That was the goal. But that seems to have backfired on some level that they, they ended up buying some of the divisions, like the division in South Carolina was not Boeing originally. Um, they actually bought that because it was a, a subcontractor sub that wasn't performing up to spec. And so Boeing just came in, basically took over that operations because Boeing has done that in other situations. So the question is sort of twofold here, Dan. One is, this, is the major subcontractor, uh, quote unquote, partnership a, a, a viable business and engineering effort? I think that's one. And, and two, are these large composite fuselage structures, which I think it's where they're having the primarily, primarily the problem on shimming, are they realizable? <laughs> can you do it? Can you really? Uh, theoretically, you can do it. But in practice, because of the size and the tight tolerances that are involved, is it truly reliably, predictably built based on 787 i would say not looking so well and I, I one of the interesting things that's been bebopping around on some of the discussion forums is the airbus a350 and some of the composites that airbus has been working on do they have similar issues or is it only a boeing issue i'm not sure we're ever going to know the answer to that one but if it's if it's a universal composite big big size problem it's better to find it out now, and it makes you wonder if Boeing will build another composite fuselage.
again. Yeah. Might might just not be worth the trouble. Yeah. Might not be worth it. Yeah. Well, speaking of interesting fuselages, let's talk about the Solera 500L, which is a product of auto aviation. And of course, we talked about this in the quirky design and whether or not people would accept this as a business jet alternative, because people that buy business jets are fancy, fancy people, if you want to put it that way. They're high powered folk who've got important places to be. And even though getting there uh, quickly is important, they also care about how it looks. And do I get the the panache of, you know, having a business jet. If you have a business jet, you want to might as well have a nice, cool, you know, looking business jet. So anyway, we had a lot of discussion about the the aesthetics so that even if this is like a beautiful, amazing aerodynamic uh, fuel saving design, would people actually accept this and say, yeah, I want this sort of blimp looking, um, you know, aircraft that's going to save me money, almost like as if it's the minivan of, you know, uh, business jets. So a lot of discussion on that. And again, it's got it's certainly got its merits if, if some of their claims uh, pay off. And let me go back through some of the Solera 500L's claims. They, uh, they say it's going to get 18 to 25 miles per gallon as opposed to two to three for a comparable business jet. Uh, this would reduce their hourly operating costs to $328 per hour versus $2,100. That's six times, about six times cheaper with a maximum range of 4,500 miles versus 2,100 miles, because it's going to be at a cruise that much easier burning less fuel because of the laminar flow uh, that the design and the aerodynamics um, boast. So, Alan, a lot of big claims about this just being a really economical jet. I'm um, sorry, the really economical prop, prop pushed um, aircraft. And they've done 55 uh, flight tests now. And they've gotten some good data. So what were some of your takeaways from their press release and the video showing the Solera 500L uh, in the skies? Well, it's it's like any aircraft that's in that stage, early stage of development, where they're trying to get some numbers and to validate what the, what the paper calculations say. And it's good that they've gone off and done that because no one's going to move forward on a project in which they can't verify the speed numbers, the efficiency numbers. So th- that's all good. I-, I think where they're at now is a really critical piece for them. If the aircraft has momentum and, and there is a marketplace for it, evidently uh, with that lower operating cost, you would think that would be a, a very viable product. And because it has a very large cabin, those are two workable pieces. And I think that would make it a very popular aircraft. The question is whether you get funding to get to the next stage and drive it to a, a completion in terms of certification. They may be able to do that. Uh, the press release is part of that package where you're looking for investors to come in. And you, you know, Dan, we're in this kind of weird SPAC world at the moment where uh, hundreds of billions of dollars can be available to develop an airplane. So if they get the right backers for it, there could be a viable aircraft coming out coming out the end. But again, when they get into those negotiations, they're going to need data before they, they, they get $300 million, $400 million to go build this aircraft, which is probably what they're going to need. Uh, they're going to need to be able to show their numbers and to validate what they're talking about. And obviously, they didn't take the aircraft up to, 
the final flight altitude. I think it would, the maximum flight is like 15,000 feet or so, which is typical for early flight tests kind of things. Uh, but the, and when you start to project those out into some really high speeds and really high altitudes, uh, you got to be able to show your work and show you can get that done. So cool technology, some really interesting results. Let's see if they can drive the program forward. Uh, well, Alan, so reading this article, uh, there's a, a bunch of them, obviously. So there was a big press release, and this is an interesting um, you know, story throughout aviation. But uh, article on the drive.com talking about the Solaris uh, flight test results didn't give a lot of data. You know, there, there are quotes from uh, the company and all that, but they said, hey, we're on, basically they said we're on track to meet these claims that we've made. But they didn't really give any much data to back that up. They talked about being able to visualize through infrared some of the, the laminar flow, but they really didn't give any specifics about what they found on these flight tests. Is that typical? Or are they maybe just keeping that close to the vest? Or where's, where is that data? What did they find? <laughs> I'm sure they have a ton of flight test data. It's rare that you see that flight test data talked about publicly. If you think about what's happened with Joby, which is now in the billion-dollar field of, in terms of investment money, you've seen very little from them in terms of flight test performance. Uh, you just don't tend to see it. I remember years ago on the Beach Starship when, when uh, Rutan was trying to sell Beach an airplane, uh, I, there were still bad feelings about that years after that. But the, the the Rutan group had given them some numbers, some flight test performance numbers uh, that each used to decide to take on that project. And those didn't when they got to building the final airplane, the numbers didn't align with that early flight test stuff. Uh, so it's sort of buyer beware here a little bit. And I, I think that's because those numbers are sort of first cut, perfect airplane, not final design. A lot of different things are going to happen to the aircraft before it gets to the final stages and what it looks like there. So you got to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. I think the, the one thing that uh, the 500L can, can rest on is what the work that Honda did on the Honda Jet. Because the Honda Jet is a lot of laminar flow, and the numbers there are pretty good. I think they sort of backed up what they were saying early on in terms of getting laminar flow. But they've been very, very, very sort of anal towards making sure their airplane is clean, like really clean in the front. Um, and Seller has gone to do something similar. So it isn't like they don't have any uh, something to work off of. Someone has actually taken this path and been successful with it. But it's been Honda. And Honda is a, a multi-billion dollar corporation. So they have the, the wherewithal to spend the money. Auto's going to have to do something very similar. The problem is, where's that money going to come from? Uh, and what are they going to show those investors? Great question. All right, moving on to our EVTOL segment today. we got two interesting aircraft designs we're going to get Alan's take on. Uh, so the first one, and this one is the, very much the going after the Blade Runner market, right, or the fifth element market. Um, take your pick of your weird sci-fi movies. I watched The Fifth Element the other day. It's one of my favorites. Um, but this Israeli company, uh, Urban Aeronautics, has a, de a design called the City Hawk. And it's interesting. It's got a, basically a huge duct uh, front and rear, so like where the trunk would be, where the engine would be in a car. And then in the center section, you know, you've got your one or two seats in the middle. And these ducts or these, these fans are completely ducted in and sort of tied into the body of the vehicle. 
And so, you know, don't have the propellers exposed, uh, which seems like, a, you know, it could bump into stuff a little bit almost and still be okay, which obviously is what you're going to need if this would ever, ever be like a fifth element kind of thing where you just put around, get in a car chase, you know, get shot at by the cops, go get your Chinese food, uh, save the world, what have you. Um, but it's an interesting design. Alan, does this one have any uh, chance to get to market? Uh, what are, What's your take on what Urban uh, Aeronautics has going on here? Well, it's based on an earlier military design that the Israeli company has come up with. And so it's, it, this aircraft is like a derivative of something they've already shown in a working form, which is really fascinating because I think there is an advantage to being smaller. There, I think there is. Energy efficiency is going to go down, you would think. It's going to require more uh, battery power or <laughs> engine power, whatever they're going to use to make this thing fly. Uh, it's not as efficient as something with a wing on it. Uh, so it's going to make sh- shorter flights. But as we talked about before, I think one of the one of the key pieces here about being mobile is being able to land in smaller places. If you're landing airport to airport, it doesn't really matter too much. But if you're going to land someplace um, in a more urban environment or a suburban environment, size matters there. And if it's too big to land, then you're pretty much going to the airport to airport again. Uh, this particular design has thought about that a little bit. And they could squeak into smaller spaces, which may open up more markets for them. I think, Dan, I think as we go back talk about like the GE9X dust testing, I think the same thing may happen here, though. When you're trying to put an aircraft down in a small space, things like dust and dirt and debris and all that nonsense start to play into it. So you're probably not going to land it in a place uh, on a downtown Washington, D.C. street because you may suck in a bunch of junk, right? Or an airport, you're not going to do that. And there's... <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you surely don't want to clean that out. <laughs> yes, that would make quite a mess. But it is. I think you're, what you're seeing right now is a lot of, of different angles on the similar problem of how, how can we move people around more efficiently is... Is an aircraft like a Joby the right answer or an aircraft like picking any other ones, right? So everybody's their own special flavor on it. And the marketplace has yet to have an input into it besides investors. The the marketplace, like people like you and me, not, not that we're ever going to afford to be able to fly on one of those things, hasn't been involved at all. So there's still a lot of question marks as to where this goes. And you're going to have to find out, right? But the question is, are you willing to spend the couple hundred million dollars to find out that's the difficult part well speaking of, of pioneering designs uh thomas senkel who's a, a german aircraft uh, developer he has got a new design and of course you would maybe know him from his first uh well the world's first electric multi-copter flight in 2011 that he manned basically sitting atop a bosu ball or a swiss ball whatever you want to call them these exercise stability balls and then just strapped to what looks like about 12 rotating propellers all around him. It's a really remarkable photo. But uh, clearly, he has got the guts to put his money where his mouth is when it comes to you know, taking flight. Um, so anyway, he has a new uh, design. It's a tandem wing configuration. It looks kind of like, like a fighter jet with a bunch of propellers um, on both sides. And, uh, Alan, what do you think of this, of this new creation from Mr. Senkel, who again has a, I mean, it, we, we've got so many people throwing just computer design prototypes in the mix, but we know that he, again, he, 
he means business when it comes to getting up in the air because he's been shown 10 years ago to the willingness to do it himself. Yeah, I, I think that's some of that part of the adventurous spirit of it really airplane designers, the guys that actually go out and design it and build it, right? That uh, that's still alive. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> now, now I, I, again, it gets down to does the design have legs? Can can it be manufactured? Is it safe to go fly? Does it have all the features that it needs? Does it have enough battery power to stay aloft? All those kind of interesting pieces are yet to be determined. But the way you do that is you start small and then you get bigger over time. And that's not very much different than what like the Wright brothers did. And I think what you're seeing here is this sort of a uh, reemergence of that sort of pioneer spirit that went on over a hundred years ago by a lot of different aircraft manufacturers and designers at the time is that they're going to go out and make something, uh, build it, not only draw and conceive of it, but actually going to go out and build it in, in a sort of very fundamental elementary form and show that it works. That gets to your next stage of once you have something that shows that it works, kind of like the Celera, then I can go out and start looking for some money and prove it, prove it out and, and get it to the next stage, which is maybe a viable product and see where it goes. And the, 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 as we've seen so many times recently, there's been a lot of news articles about uh, EV tolls that are just on paper. And you're just like, there's just no way <laughs> that thing's going to work. But when, they, when you see somebody sitting in, a, in an airplane they've, or an aircraft they've built themselves and lifting off the ground, it puts some sort of, you know, something behind it <laughs> that, that gives you a feeling like, oh, maybe that concept would work. Maybe you could expand upon it. Maybe you could make it so the, uh, the system is reliable and all those other features because the, the Volocopter, which is, you know, derived out of some of these guys' work, uh, is a viable thing. You can question about whether how much marketplace it has, but it's still very, it's going to be a very viable product. So it, all these things sort of develop over time. And does it happen in two or three years? Typically not. It tends to happen in the 10 to 15 year time frame from sort of first conception, first original model to a certified product. It's a long, it's a long cycle. Yeah. So their creation, the eMagic one, um, you know, and I, like you said, you can appreciate about the team there that they wanted to have a, they said they wanted to have a functional prototype when they want public and they have. So, you know, they've shown this, the e-magic, uh, taking off conventionally, but then, um, you know, they talked about the characteristics of the, the tandem wing design and how it's uh, apparently really good. Like it, it won't stall. Um, and then just, I mean, what, what specific aerodynamic advantages do you see? This design having probably better performance and slow flight that's probably where and the handling characteristics are very docile because you, you don't want a fighter jet type aircraft in the ev tail market necessarily because of the flight characteristics of it right where you have to have a bunch of computers to make it fly and it's very unstable and so there's awkward phases of flight you can get into accidents uh and that's and that's and that's it's very similar to what Beta is doing up in Vermont in terms of the aircraft design. Very docile aircraft to go fly. Um, I know Joby talked about this in their presentation over the last week or so. They had an hour-long presentation. They were talking about their aircraft. If it lost power, what would happen? 
and their contention is they can glide to the ground, right? So they're, they're, everybody's trying to show that it's very docile handling performance. That means aerodynamically, you got to do a couple of things, right? You, you can't, uh, you got a, a very, you, <laughs> yeah, you got to design it a certain way such that it doesn't react, overreact, or stall, or do all those kind of funny things that when this aircraft are going to operate at relatively low speeds, especially as you get close to the ground and get into hover mode, you, you can't have the aircraft roll over like a single engine Cessna would do at low speeds. It can't do that. So it's got to have a really unique wing and tail design. And a canard can also help with that because it's very docile around slow speeds. So just a lot of different, I would say, olders, uh, older aircraft designs, sort of like the kit building phase back in the 1970s and 80s. A lot of airplanes very similar to that. All right, so last on the docket today uh, is Joby, and there's a lot in the news cycle right now about them um, being the first to receive uh, their FAA certification. So they're on track that they say to get to certification by 2023, which is only, I mean, depending on where in 2023, only 14 months off. It was the beginning of the year. Um, I mean, Alan, so where are they right now? in the certification push and what are they talking about when they're when they're you know getting so much attention in the news cycle about certification what joby said on their investor uh, presentation the other day was they have their issue paper from the faa so they know what their type basis is all the rules they're gonna have to go show compliance with they have some certification plans in process it sounds like you're talking about the beginning of 2022 before some of those CERT plans will actually make their way over to the FAA. And then, then the real negotiations start on what's going to be done to show compliance. It also sounds like they're in the middle, in the middle of building a first conforming prototype that would put them typically uh at that point in a standard program, you're probably two to three years away from certification. You're somewhere in there. It seems like they're a little behind on the certification plans, in my opinion, because there's so much work to do and so much testing to be done and flight tests to be done. They're probably, what they were saying on, on the investor call was that they would be done at the end of 2023. And I thought, well, in airplane talk, that means December 31st, 2023, because they want to enter service in 2024 early 2024 and they like to get their production certificate so those things all jive but do they have the horsepower to do it that quickly that's a great question because i don't know i didn't get a really good feeling on that it's like do we have all the people in place and assuming that there's no problems and you know there's gonna be a problem or two or five or ten that happen during the flight test program or production cycle or all the other variable things that are happening that uh, you know, there's just there's just so many unknown unknowns. That's why that's why air, aircraft programs really go tend to go much longer than usually. There's a five year window of when you apply for a type certificate to when you should finish it. Otherwise, they bump you with the next set of regulations. The FAA does. Yeah, I mean, it, just the way you've talked about it uh, throughout our time on this podcast is it, it seems like these announcements are almost like a soldier announcing to the world that he's going to, he's going to become a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret. It's like, you mean you're going to try, right? Like, because 
most people that go try come back a failure. Like they don't make it, whether that's not because they gave up or because, well, a lot of them give up, but it could be they gave up, they got hurt, they couldn't pass a test. Like there's a lot of reasons that people say, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL, for example, and no matter their declaration, they don't make it. It's really just the idea that you're going to try to head up that mountain. And so, I mean, is that kind of a decent analogy for this? Like they can probably get there eventually, but the question is how many obstacles and hurdles and extensions they need. And then does that burn up all their cash? That's the game. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the risk. Right. And I think the analogy sort of plays out. There's, if you can imagine you have, I think right now they say they have a thousand employees. So you have a thousand people going in roughly a thousand directions every day, trying to, to meet one goal. And if some of them get off track, um, some of them leave, retire. Uh, you can just even on the people side, it's such a huge problem. Just managing all that and to keep everything going is so hard. And the 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 one that sticks in my head the most probably because I thought they had the best chance of from an airplane design standpoint, but yet couldn't make it to the finish line in a sense. It was Eclipse, and you know they had plenty of uh, funding to go make this little twin engine jet problem was the motors didn't work like they thought they were going to work and then it just sort of drug on and drug on and if joby runs into a similar problem with electric motors or the high voltage cabling or the connectors or flight controls or a million different things they're going to be in that same boat where they're going to get shoved to the right and the cost of the airplane is going to go up and then how does that play out and You've got people training to be pilots, and do they have to be retrained? Do I have to go pull them back into, right? So even the, like the like the seven three seven discussion about training of pilots, and Joby's going to go through that same thing. It, there's just so many pieces that are all tied together in this really unique chain of events that has to happen. If, invariably, some of those links break, and you got to slow down and put it back together. So, 2023, I think, could be aggressive. 2025 probably more realistic but they're driving really hard it's clear i mean they have very capable from just watching some of the presentations and knowing the people are working that project they have a lot of talented people on that project at the moment so they have a really good shot to do it it's just making it all happen yeah well it'll be interesting to see the climate of things in about like you said about a year maybe 18 months and see how close people really are and what companies are left still you know, viable and, and fighting because a lot of these prototypes, even now looking back three, four five months, there's a lot of prototypes that got one press release and they probably paid for about a new design and then not a peep since then. Right. Yeah. So you're, a lot of these are going to deceive, you know, they're going to, they're going to die quietly and the, the vibe ones are going to keep charging, like you said. But that's uh, going to do it for this week's episode of the struck aerospace engineering podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.